0: Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Cavanaugh, director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University in Chicago. There is one small error to be corrected in the following podcast. When Professor Thorson says Syro he means to say Syriac Orthodox. Okay, welcome everybody to the podcast today. Uh, My name is Bill Cavanaugh. I'm the director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University. And I'm very pleased to have uh, my friend and colleague, Jacob Higaris Thorsen, uh, from Denmark, uh, who's here working uh, as a visiting scholar for this uh, quarter uh, on the church in Guatemala. And Jacob, welcome. Thank you very much, Bill. So, Jacob, you are um, from Denmark, but you're working on Guatemala. Um, one doesn't meet a lot of Danish Catholics. Tell us a little bit about your story and a little bit about the church in Denmark.
1: Well, as uh, most of the listeners might know, um, Denmark is a majority Lutheran country uh, where or 77% are members of the Lutheran Church, and uh, so was I, Um, and um, I thought that I was going to be a a Lutheran minister, uh, pastor, when I was a small boy, but as a 16-year-old, I traveled to Guatemala as an exchange student, high school exchange student, and lived there uh, for one year with a new Pentecostal family, actually, and I met my future wife um, there, too, And um, getting to know her and getting to know Guatemala, um, and also actually having a a great aunt who was uh, Catholic, I slowly, uh, slowly, uh, over a period of seven, eight years, uh, came closer and closer to the Catholic Church, and in the end, I thought it would not be honest not to convert. (laughs) So so I I did that, and I had to give up the dream of becoming a, a pastor. Okay. Did you convert uh, before or after you um, married your, your wife? Uh, I, I converted after. Okay. Yeah, we married okay. uh, very young when we were 18. Wow. And uh, I converted when I was 25 or something like that. Okay,
0: yeah.
1: And and you've got children? I've got three children, aged uh, 20, 18, and 14 almost. Okay. Talk a little bit about the the Catholic Church
0: in Denmark. It's a pretty small minority.
1: It's a small church. There are around 50,000 registered members, which would make it not 1%, but almost 1% of the population. Uh, But in reality there are maybe 250,000 Catholics, because there are a lot of migrant workers from Eastern Europe, especially from Poland. Um, but it's a small minority. It, minority. however, it is the second largest Christian church in the country. Really? And it's very intercultural because there are people from all over the world. So, in a average Sunday mass, there will be around between fifty and seventy different nationalities gathered in uh, in in one room, all celebrating in in broken Danish. <laughs>
0: interesting do you also have uh, you know masses in
1: Polish or Vietnamese or Filipino or yes, we have all of it. We have English masses Italian, Spanish, uh, French, German uh, and uh, Vietnamese and we have uh, also a pretty large group of Chaldean Christians who uh, have their own right and who uh, celebrate in in Arabic, or uh, who are Arab- Arabic-speaking, and we also have Ukrainian uh, Catholics who also have their own right. Okay,
0: wow! I imagine you might be taking some refugees from Ukraine these days.
1: Oh yes, I think we have received around uh, between uh, thirty or forty thousand uh, during the last months. Okay, so the stereotype of
0: Denmark is a, that it's a very secular uh, place are there ways in which that's true and ways in which that's uh, not not
1: really more more complicated it is uh, in in one way one of the most secular countries because there is only we have the lowest uh, percentage of of christians going to church on an average sunday it's around between 1 and 2% wow. of the population uh, however um, and i mean um, not so many people would uh, also members of the Lutheran Church would would uh, say yes to, to to defining themselves as believers. However, the the Lutheran Church is a very strong um, cultural institution and people remain members and pay 1.2 uh, percent of their income automatically to the church and they could opt out if they wanted. but most uh, choose to remain. Uh, Also, because as people say, I don't know whether I'm a believer now, but I might be later on in life. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a kind of uh, existential ecclesial insurance. Uh, And it is uh, people, even if people don't believe in God, they believe very much in the church as a national, uh, cultural, and also. also, um, how do you call it? Um, an institution that does a lot of good things in society. Mm. And most people will uh, go to church on Christmas and for weddings and for burials and for baptisms. Um, so we call them uh, four wheeler Christians. They come for four occasions baptism, uh, confirmation, a wedding, and a burial. <laughs> Hatched, matched, and dispatched, as the as the
0: saying goes in English. Right? Yeah, that's only three of the wheels. But yeah, um,
1: yeah. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I am. Um, I have. I, I want to say so much more. Apart from, it is always tricky to measure religiosity. So, so um, if you have like a very clear-cut idea about what is it is to be a believing Christian, then uh, Danes would would have a low uh, come out low, but if you define it a bit more broad uh, as an existential openness towards the divine and a searching, and also an open attitude towards um, uh, life and also towards the Christian faith, even if you cannot define yourself as a hundred percent believer, then I think it's it is uh, not that secular. Okay, interesting. So the. It's complicated,
0: uh, and uh, that would probably describe the the lay of the land in Guatemala as well. Uh, things are complicated in a very different way, but um, can you can you say a little bit about how you got interested in studying uh,
1: religion in Guatemala? Apart from having a wife from Guatemala and having lived there um, in, 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 in shorter periods, um, I was fascinated by the pluralism in Guatemala. And uh, so there were so many different churches, so many uh, different evangelical churches. There was a Catholic church that was also very, uh, very uh, differentiated and, and pluralistic with Catholic charismatics and uh, indigenous uh, Catholicism with syncretistic traits. And you had so all the different movements. So what I found fascinating was that when I looked on the shelves of the library, there were like meters of shelves with books about liberation theology. And I had lived in Guatemala, and I knew, yes, there was some institution that were influenced by by uh, liberation theology, but what I saw on a parish level was not liberation theology. It was charismatic Catholicism. Uh, and I wondered, there was not even one book written about, the at, at that time, there was not one book written about the charismatic renewal in, in Latin America, and it was maybe... 10, 20, 30 times bigger than liberation theology. So I I thought, that is so strange. But I thought maybe it's because like theologians like myself, especially from from the US or from Europe, can easier identify with uh, liberation theology than they can identify with charismatic Catholicism. So I thought, well, uh, maybe charismatic Catholicism is not my way of worship, but I have to study this phenomenon because it's all over. And it's not only in the Catholic Charismatic groups, but the practices, the songs, the way of, of worshipping has, has spilled over into all other groups as well. And into uh, when you go to preparation for marriage or preparation for baptism, with, uh, many of these ways of preaching and of talking and of singing come from the Charismatic Renewal and have spilled into regular church life. So that process was not studied at that time by by almost anyone. So I thought there is a lacuna in, in, in the research. So I, I want to study that. And then I did field work in, in Guatemala City and followed different different uh, charismatic and semi-charismatic uh, groups and saw how church institution and renewal movement were influencing each other. Both on a local level in a parish, but also on the diocesan level, national level, and actually uh, on the also on the Latin American level um, to 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 see and, and that was uh, quite an interesting study for me to to do. Okay, so that was your your first book. Yes, was on um, uh, Pentecostals
0: and Charismatics in Guatemala. Can you say, say what the what the thesis of your book is? So you said that. It doesn't. There just wasn't a whole lot of work done on that uh, at the time. Um, what What did you
1: look for, and what did you find? I I, I used uh, classical. Um, it had like a sociological part, and it had a theological part. So, in the sociological part, I looked at classical uh, studies of of mm-hmm. movement and institution, the the interplay between renewal movements of be they political or, or religious, and then established institutions. And, and, and the case in Latin America followed the, 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 the classical pattern that the charismatic renewal uh, started out as being very critical of the church institution. Uh, many Catholic charismatic groups separated themselves from the church, and the church institution was very hostile, was clamping down on, on the charismatics, and then at some point they found out well, this is a, this situation will not work because uh, basically the charismatic renewal in this way becomes a stepping stone to Pentecostalism because people get angry with the church institution and let's make it a containment wall instead. So uh, the movement was embraced by the institutional church reluctantly and uh, I think it was John Paul II he put uh, the Virgin Mary as the patron saint of the movement and there should be a Marian act in every charismatic meeting in in that way, giving it a, a, a very uh, uh, clear Catholic branding, you could say, and then you what you see is this classical uh, process where the church institution and the renewal movement a- adapt to each other. So the, the renewal movement becoming less rebellious, uh, becoming more obedient, uh, being more also directed by the church, and on the other hand, the church institution uh, Slowly adopting some of the practices from the renewal movement, so you have seen that before in church history, with the Franciscan, the mendicant orders in in the Middle Ages, and 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 so on. So that was that was like the sociological part, and then the theological part was about what does this, what I call incipient Pentecostalization of the Catholic Church in in Latin America. What does that do to the way the church understands itself as a faith uh, community uh, and how do you balance uh, being a ch- broad Catholic church for all, catch-all church uh, on the one hand and on the other hand having a very strong influence of a movement uh, that uh, stresses a more um, a, 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 a more demanding understanding of what it means to be church. Can you have these two together? Um, and uh, also in the context of the new evangelization that also pushes in the direction of a church where every member has um, taken a stance and actively said yes to being a Catholic. Um, this going together with the charismatic push, what would do that do to folk Catholicism and you can call the the. the famous very colorful latin american folk catholicism that is not so demanding and um, where people uh, worship many times on their own terms um, also apart outside of mass so so i was looking at that and and i saw that there was a lot to gain for the catholic church by adopting this more uh, demanding understanding of being church but it also comes with a cost and the cost is that many of the the, the more cultural Catholics or the Catholics uh, those who define themselves as Catholic, uh, católico de mi manera, Catholic in my own way, you risk uh, pushing them out of the church by putting uh, uh, high demands on uh, what what you need to do in order to be a good Catholic. So you cannot just have your kids baptized. You need to participate in three weekend courses, etc., etc. And pushing them out, then
0: they're, they're, there's nowhere else to go. Then they become atheists, agnostics. I mean, is that
1: what you mean by pushing them out or, or just yeah, and disaffected? I think, yeah, disaffiliated uh, Catholic in my own way or, or what you see now in new in, in uh, numbers from Chile, Argentina. When, when If you don't count the number of baptized, but you ask people, what are you? Then suddenly the drop in Catholics is, is very high. And that is because many of those they think, okay, if you're Catholic, then you need to do this and this and that. I cannot do that. So if I'm asked, then I say, no, I'm I'm, I'm nothing. So the, so that is a it is a very delicate balance for a church uh, to 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 see where, what should we do, what should we demand, uh, what who do we want to be. Yeah. So in some ways,
0: this this confirms Charles Taylor's uh, thesis. That um, uh, of in his famous book, the Secular Age, where it's precisely this kind of early modern uh, effort to get people on board to to make Christianity an ethical kind of more demanding uh, practice uh, that leads towards the secularization of of Europe and and the, the so-called
1: modern West. You're perfectly right, and if you see the enormous revival of Christianity in general, both Catholic and Protestant, in Latin America, it's very much connected to the rapid social changes that the continent has has undergone, especially since the middle of the 20th century, um, where Folk Catholicism wouldn't do it if you had to survive in the city, and you needed a, you, you needed a moral compass. You needed a community that would take care of you, and and the institutional church in Latin America, and especially in places like Guatemala, was extremely weak due to liberal reformers in the nineteenth century had kicked almost out, all priests out. Uh, so so the institution was very weak. And uh, so the response of the people was either to 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 become uh, Protestant, uh, or to organize themselves in new ways within the Catholic Church. And then you have this huge amount of, uh, especially um, U.S. American, Canadian, and European priests coming to Latin America to save Latin America in 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 the 50s and onward, and um, and and they basically um, they basically organize or make the Church strong again as an institution and uh, the Catholic Church um, in many ways copies uh, the the formula of success of the Protestant churches by by beginning to define themselves as as more close-knit communities of believers um, and 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 now you then see that this also comes with a is completely understandable and it has done a lot of good to the Catholic Church in in, in Latin America, also for vocations and, and things like that. But everything comes with a price. And, and and that is maybe what we see now, especially in countries like Chile, Argentina. But you see it almost all over Latin America, if you go to the higher middle classes, um, that there is a certain uh, amount of people in, in my generation, generation X, and especially millennials, who uh, opt out of organized uh, religion.
0: And you think the reason for that is that um, Catholicism has gotten
1: more demanding? I mean, there, certainly there are other reasons for that as well. Yes, but I think it's one of the, one of the contributing factors. Uh, another thing is that, that um, you also see that many people who are evangelicals in the third or fourth generation uh, begin to, to drop out of, of organized uh, church life. So they become, instead of católico de mi manera, Catholic in my own way, they become evangélico de mi manera, evangelical in my own way. So they still understand themselves as evangelicals, but they are not closely attached to one church anymore. They maybe use media. They are maybe not as strict in the the rules about, for example, dressing and drinking alcohol or dancing like they are. Grandfather was and and in that way they feel that they cannot fit within an established church anymore and and that is also a contributing uh, factor. Okay, interesting Let me back up historically a little bit.
0: Um, I remember reading I think it was maybe David Stoll uh, in the 90s in that book is Latin America turning Protestant but um, it, it's a line that I that I've heard, and I don't know. I, I think it, it, it comes from him, but it might come from, from come from somebody else. But the basic line is the Catholic Church opted for the poor, and the poor opted for the evangelical church. Um, and the the idea was that um, the the committed kind of liberationist Catholicism could get you killed in a place like Guatemala. Um, during the Civil War, and so the Evangelical Church was not uh, politically engaged and was a safer place.
1: Is that a stereotype? Is that true? What do you th- What do you think? Of it is. That? It is partly true. Uh, that is one part of the explanation, especially in, in countries with, with a civil war like Guatemala. So, so that is definitely the, an aspect. But there is also another side to it. I think what the liberationists did wrong was not taking. The religious enchanted worldview, you might say, of folk Catholicism, serious. So basically, uh, they would say, "Don't use your energy praying to the saints, uh, putting up candles, and doing your, your your traditions. Concentrate on changing society for the better." Uh, and and so they many times did not take it serious or even frowned upon. Uh, um this enchanted worldview of angels and demons and visitations and dreams and um the success of the of the evangelical churches was apart from their giving a strong moral compass and giving close-knit communities it was also that they actually took seriously this worldview of course they remodeled it a little and they gave people the tools to combat evil and combat evil spirits um but but they took it seriously. And, um, and in that way, it is right, it is said that the church opted for the poor and the poor opted for Pentecostalism, and it was only until the the, the growth or the explosion of the charismatic renewal, that you see something uh, like that in the Catholic Church, where now many of the priests who studied, I know priests who studied, uh, inspired by Romero, who studied in, in El Salvador, very much in this liberation theology agenda, now they are sent on courses in exorcism in Mexico, mm-hmm. because the church is now taking this spiritual realm very seriously, you have reintroduced the the the, the prayer to uh, uh, Saint Michael, Saint Archangel Michael after the mass, where you where you ask him to protect you in the in the combat against evil spirits and, and stuff like that. And and so that was also a hard lesson uh, to learn for for the Catholic Church. So in one way, liberation theology is very Latin American in the sense that it springs out of a social context. But in another way, it's very European in the sense that it is, it is, it is disenchanted. It is modern in its worldview. And, and that is why I think it really never uh, caught the broad masses in, in, in Latin America. It did have a lot of good influence because a lot of those who were raised in the institutions influenced by liberation theology moved on. To, to popular organizations and and, and uh, fighting for democracy, etc. Once that, that uh, military di- dictatorship allowed you to do so. Um, but um, I think that is part of the explanation why um, so many people also left the church at that point. That's interesting, um, because
0: the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements are also have origins in the um, in the global north right so the pentecostal movement comes out of the azusa street revival in los angeles uh, and then spreads and then the catholic charismatic movement starts at duquesne university and spreads to the university of notre dame and that that's also an american uh thing um so when when the catholic charismatic renewal happens in guatemala um does it come from uh, just imitating what the protestants are doing or does it come from the catholic charismatic renewal in the united states uh, or is it a more kind of indigenous you
1: know it comes it comes um it comes from from the the u.s i mean the first i mean the first is a a, i can't remember his name a dominican friar uh, comes down and holds some retreats uh, and in in the beginning it's very much a a middle class movement urban middle class movement uh, the charismatic renewal but then it spreads out and it becomes uh, indigenized. It becomes adopted to the context, and then it becomes a movement that that moves beyond just the middle class and becomes also uh, very big in the in the popular classes. Uh, so 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 it comes from the U.S. But as you see, uh, somehow Pentecostalism has has a nerve that that seems to be able to adapt to all. Uh, cultural context—it's huge now in, in Africa. It's huge in Latin America. Right. It's huge in Southeast Asia, Asia and Philippines. Uh, so, so I think this—and what I think basically is the is the the this, 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 this strong uh, the strength of Pentecostalism is that it does take seriously the spiritual realm, and in that way, it's able to adapt to also pre-existing religious worldviews uh, and. Um, and um, connect with them and give people some tools to to handle that uh, sometimes frightening spiritual realm mm. um i think that that, that that is if i had to, to boil it down to a, a very concentrated explanation i think that would be my explanation why uh, uh, pentecostal and charismatic christianity has become so enormously successful in a context of change because I mean, um, when when, when society is changing fast, then you also need a religion that can guide you and help you in that process of rapid change, both identity-wise, but also on a very uh, everyday level. How to live my life in this. Maybe you are living in a big city in the outskirts, in the slums. There are gangs. There is drug dealing. There is a lot of problems with alcohol and drugs. What do you do to survive there? Um, I I think in El Salvador and Guatemala and many outskirts of the city, you have as a young man, you have two choices. You can join the gangs or you can join a church group, be it Catholic or Pentecostal or Evangelical.
0: Interesting. So um, maybe we can start talking a little bit more about your current project because uh, some of what you're doing now is showing the response in Santiago Atitlan um, to the process of moderniz- modernization. Could you say a little bit more about what that process of modernization
1: is what, what's, and what's causing it? Yeah, I have been very interested in, in religious change, obviously, in Latin America. And also, especially, I wanted to move into the, the, the indigenous realm And and therefore, I decided to do a study in in Santiago, Atitlan, in Guatemala, a city located near the very beautiful Atitlan Lake um, that all tourists who come to Guatemala visit, so some might know it. And um, I chose chose to, to study that particular town because it has been studied by anthropologists since the early 50s. And if you want to track change, it's good to choose a place that has been studied before. And what you see in Atitlan is that the, the, basically the city was without a resident priest uh, since the beginning of the 18th century. So almost 300 years uh, without a resident priest. And then you had um, uh, like religious brotherhoods called cofradias who would take care of the saints and celebrating the big feasts. And what you would see there was that um, you would have a mix of, of Mayan cosmology and Mayan deities with the Christian Catholic saints and figures and understandings. And and they would have this way of doing uh, religion for many, many years. And um, three, four, five, six times a year, a priest would come by and say mass in Latin, baptize the children and uh, leave again. Um, so when the Oklahoma mission adopted um, Santiago Atitlang in the beginning of the 60s, uh, an adoption that went on until 2003, uh, they put in a lot of priests, sisters, uh, they built a hospital, they did a lot of, of good work. Um, I think um, child mortality dropped by 90% and, wow. and stuff like that. And they started to, to, to organize and, and uh, do catechesis and and there were also already some catechists who were like mainline or by the book Catholics who were in opposition to the to the uh, Maya Catholic traditionalism, but they of course were boosted uh, with the arrival of the priests. And while the American priests did not confront um, did not confront Maya traditionalism outright, they built up a, a Catholic infrastructure. And uh, so today, uh, this Maya traditionalism has has is only followed by like five percent of the population. Maybe one the other half of the population, uh, or fifty or forty percent of the population, has become evangelical, and forty uh, percent could be described as Catholics by the book. And then you have a small town where you have uh, basically three different groups, which can again be subdivided, but we won't go into that, where well, you basically have three different groups um, who are fiercely competing for uh, for um, for followers, but also for the right to define what is a proper Christian and the right to define what is a proper Tzutuhil Maya. And um, it is not a problem with the evangelicals and the Catholics, because they don't share any church buildings or anything. But with the traditionalists and the mainline Catholics, they are always in a, in, a, in a struggling because they share the same sacred space. All the side altars of the church are taken care of by the traditionalists, and um, because of the liberal reforms in the 19th century, the church does not belong to the Catholic Church. The Catholic church belongs to the, the church building, belongs to the community. So who has the saying? And uh, uh, what do you do? Uh, and basically, what you see is that you have had some really some clashes, but then you have also have attempts by the poor bishop who has tried to reconciliate parts. Um, and and today you have like a parallel two parallel systems. So for Good Friday, you have uh, one mass inside the church for the traditionalist and one procession that proceeds in the traditionalist way, and then outside in the atrium of the church you have a huge uh, mainline Catholic celebration and another procession going out. So it is um, it is this uh, struggle. And I wonder partly what is happening there, how can we understand it uh, anthropologically, but also on a theological level, um, that is a broken community in some senses. They are all Christians, but they are f- fighting each other and they are competing. So are there ways that we could, I mean, the the mainliners are very, very anti-traditionalism. So they basically say that is syncretism, that is uh, pagan, that is heathen, throw it all away. And the traditionalists say, um, this is our way of being Catholic, we have always done like this. And they have a lot of stories and myths and understanding of the, cosmos of the nature around there, which is encapsulated in these uh, stories. So uh, on the one hand, I can understand the mainline Catholics who want to be mainline Catholics by the book, but they are also very fast to just throw everything away that was before and thereby also losing a cultural memory of who we are. So I'm thinking about theologically, is it possible in some way to reconcile these different practices and worldviews of recreating uh, community. So when you say traditionalist, you're using the
0: term in a very different way than uh, when we in the United States talk about a traditionalist, it tends to be, in the Catholic context, yes. it tends to be somebody who likes the Latin mass and, yes. and so on. But you're talking about people that have um, uh Worship of the saints and different deities and kind of intermingled with uh, with Catholic uh, belief and that's a use the term before of a kind of enchanted worldview um, that the Pentecostal charismatics have Um, But this is a different kind of enchanted uh, worldview Um, so there's a kind of modern enchantment and a modern enchantment? Or how, how, how do you negotiate that? Yeah,
1: I, I would say that is, a, you know, when, when Gabriel Garcia Marquez won the Nobel Prize in literature in the 80s, somewhere in the in late 80s, I think it was. Um, um, he said, uh, all you people describe my books and the books of my, my, my fellow Latin American uh, authors as uh, magical realism. But he said, for a Latin American, it's not magical realism, it is realism. Because we all have experienced uh, visions, dreams, uh, talking saints, etc. etc. And I think it's very precisely, as you say, that the difference between a folk Catholic, old fashioned folk Catholic, and also a Maya Catholic traditionalist, as I said, worldview and a neo Pentecostal or charismatic worldview. Is that they are both enchanted in the sense that they take seriously the spiritual realm, and uh, there is a, 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 a porosity between the the, the immanent and the and the and the transcendent realm, uh, where f- things happen and uh, you can be a victim of witchcraft, etc., etc. But uh, whereas the the uh, Maya uh, traditionalist um, Worldview is is more uh, maybe a little more fatalistic and nebulous, so you cannot really you cannot really grasp exactly what is up and down and what is good and bad and what will happen. Then in the Pentecostal and the Charismatic uh, enchanted worldview, it is it is it is more it is more well ordered, it is more transparent, and there are some certain practices that you can acquire. In order to 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 uh, wear off the evil forces, so in that sense, uh, it is not a modernization in the secular European sense, but it is a modernization of an enchanted worldview that is remodeled in a way that it makes uh, it, you can handle it actually. And is that so? Say a little bit about the kind of
0: economic and cultural modern. When you say modernization. Um, how does this kind of dualistic uh, worldview fit in with, you know, changes in economy and and culture and so on that you would identify as modernization in Santiago Atitlán? Yeah,
1: yeah. Let's go back to a concrete place like Santiago Atitlán. You will see that uh, fifty or sixty years ago, you would be a relatively secluded uh, town where uh, you would uh, grow your corn, your beans, and uh, you would have an a year circle, very much influenced by the agricultural uh, circle. You would do some trade also, but it was that was how it was, and it was more or less predictable. You could have a bad year with no rain; you would have a bad harvest. Uh, but but it was more or less, uh, in that sense, predictable. Um, what happens when you get uh, connected to the outside world uh, via stra- via roads and trade and um, people coming in and out, internet, it, internet uh, media, etc., is that it, 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 and you have a neoliberal state where, with no social security at all, um, it makes you very vulnerable. Of course, it gives you the possibility to suddenly to earn a lot of money that you could not earn before. Some do, but definitely not all. Many also live a much more precarious life. Because land is scarce, population is growing, uh, there is not enough work for everyone, so there is petty trading, and 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 in, in that in in that world you are much more vulnerable. You can really uh, slide down the social ladder uh, very fast if you are hit by uh, by um, by illness, sickness. Uh, if you get ill, um, if you have an accident, uh, if someone. Uh, steals from you, takes your... So, in in, in such a world uh, which is much more unpredictable, it might be more prosperous for most, but it's also very much more unpredictable. In such a world, you need to be able to, not control, but to navigate the spiritual forces. You need the techniques, the community that can back you up uh, when you are hit by misfortune. Okay. So, you've divided us the the
0: Christians of Santiago Atitlán into three groups: mainline Catholics, traditional Mayan Catholics, and Pentecostals. Are the mainline Catholics also divided into Charismatics and not Charismatics?
1: Yes, uh, there is a huge um, there is a huge um, Charismatic group, and then but they are not the majority. And then there are the, the the mainliners, which come out of the Catholic Action movement originally. So, they both have a social focus, but also a very strong focus on, on, on orthodoxy and uh, press. And they are in, in, in internal uh, infight, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. And then, actually, the last group, to make it more complicated, <laughs> is that we have a Catholic split off group, uh, which are under uh, uh, now Bishop uh, Eduardo Aguirre, which ha- have aligned themselves to the uh, Syro Phoenician Church. So you now actually have four hundred thousand Mayas who are uh, uh, liturgically Orthodox um, because they are connected to the to the syro uh, Church, and but they are basically Charismatics, huh. Charismatics with uh, now adopting uh, uh, Orthodox liturgy. Um, but that is just uh, that is just to make it completely complicated. <laughs> that's very interesting. How did that happen? And that happened because there was a split inside the Catholic Church with a very charismatic priest, um, and and he uh, he couldn't get straight with his bishop, and he and he opted he ended with uh, uh, going out of the Catholic Church, and he took with him some at least at that time I think it was around hundred thousand uh, people who followed him, and then they were kind of uh, homeless in in a period until he connected with the. Uh, with the Orthodox Church, so this the syro rite is
0: that a rite of the Eastern Rite Catholics? Yes. Okay. No,
1: not not Catholics because they are not in communion with the Pope. Oh, they aren't. They, okay. They aren't. Uh, so, so this
0: is a, this is Orthodox. So yes. not, not Eastern Rite. Yeah. Catholic. Okay. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I think that is just that is that shows us what globalization is. 400 (laughs) Mayas who are now part of the Orthodox Church. It's just as funny as in the Lutheran Church in Guatemala City, the biggest part of the congregation are Chinese Lutherans who were converted by Danish and German uh, missionaries in China and who after the Reformation fled to to Latin America. That shows us what what globalization is. Yeah, very interesting. So the bishop is
0: trying to um, reconcile the various kinds of Catholics
1: and holding talks. How are those going? It is going uh, well now compared to before, because in, in 2011 there were clashes, and earlier in history there have also been clashes which uh, which sometimes were also violent. Um, but now they are agreeing on a, a modus vivendi, uh, a way of coexistence where um, where the the Traditionalists are left to do their stuff, as long as they don't uh, uh, drink alcohol inside the church and outside on the church plaza. And uh, the priests participate in some of the things that the traditionalist wants them to participate in. But apart from that, they, they live their lives um, quite apart, but within every family I have had examples of of one who was in charge of a cofradia, of of these traditionalist brotherhoods, and his wife uh, would not go into the cofradia because she was mainline Catholic, so she would go to Mass, and uh, their son had converted to Pentecostalism. So it's not like families that are divided. It goes right through families. And, of course, you can sometimes... I mean, sometimes people also switch back and forth. So, I mean, it's strictly forbidden for evangelicals to go to these cofradías for healing and stuff like that. But, I mean, if the kid is really sick and praying in the church hasn't helped, then sometimes they would come late at night or they would just bring the closest of the baby to the cofradía. Someone else would bring it and it would be blessed there in the old traditional way and brought back. So there is always this overlap and orthodoxy in either of the three groups is not always as firm as the pastors and uh, priests and lay leaders would uh, like them to be. L- lines are much easier to draw in theory than in
0: practice, right? So, um, Rodney Stark and Todd Harch and other people have argued that um, the growth of evangelical churches in Latin America has made the Catholic Church better. Um, by competition, um, you know, you have to, to kind of wake up and um, get people more involved, and and there's actually some empirical research that shows that where the evangelical churches are strong, the attendance at uh, Catholic Mass has gone up. So they argue that um, competition has made the Catholic Church better, but In a lot of ways, your uh, research is pointing to the the downside of that, too, that you you might get a more kind of committed core, but then there are people uh, that have traditionally been Catholic who don't feel kind of
1: welcome. I, I basically agree with them. It has made the Catholic Church much better, much more organized. I mean, and and never. I mean, they also have this article called "The Churching of Latin America." Rodney Stark has, mm-hmm. together with another author, and and that is true. And if you see Santiago at Atlanta there are three hundred lay groups who meet on a weekly basis, who visit the sick, who uh, bring food out to the to the hamlets where people do not have enough to eat. Uh, who sing and who praise and who pray they have they are only uh, 24,000 catholics they have a chapel of perpetual adoration which has been uh, open all the time for six uh, seven years now uh you know, eight years now i mean that is Im- Im- impressive you have people praying there they take turns these groups to, to pray there so in that sense they are they're completely right it was necessary for the catholic church to 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 step up to organize themselves, to take the laity seriously, all that is is completely correct. I just point to the downside that everything comes with a price. And once this period of mobilization, which has now been going on for for 60, 70 years, once this period of mobilization uh, ebbs out because society is changing, etc., then you might see, and I think that is what we are seeing now, uh, you will see a new generation who do the same as uh, Europeans and North Americans did in 68. So you will have this shift, talking with Taylor's terms, shift of from an age of mobilization to an age of authenticity, where you will no longer just accept being enrolled in the church and adopting church doctrine, etc. So what you see now with the permission of same-sex marriages in in um, in Mexico City and in Argentina and in Chile and uh, uh, abortion um, being permitted now in more and more places, I think that is exactly showing us that, that this super-Catholic and Christian stronghold, Latin America is not as safe and consolidated, as you might think. So I think we will see much of these changes now in the next decades. Mm -hmm. And that means that the Catholic Church, so of course the the evangelical churches, will have to find out how are we church in a pluralistic society where we can no longer rely on a cultural Catholicism that is a shared uh, cultural thing that, that we that. That we have, how are we? How are we church in, in, in that context? Also, how are we church for young people who will not uh, just sign uh, the whole uh, doctrine of the church, but who also have opinions and who challenge uh, hierarchical power structures, etc. So, so that is the new thing that the Catholic Church in Latin America will have to figure out, and likewise, the evangelical churches will have to figure out how can we be churches for a new. Third generation of evangelicals who have not had this uh, conversion experience, who have but who have been growing up in this, and who also now form their own opinions, and um, yeah.
0: So, well, that that then brings me to the last thing that I want to ask you about. So you've raised these questions, um, but you're also in your current project trying to suggest some answers, right? Um, you are uh, hoping to to give some. Uh, impetus to uh, a new kind of theology of enculturation, which is able to take um, some of the kind of traditional elements of Mayan culture and bring it into mainline Catholicism in a way that uh, respects both the Church's tradition and the cultural traditions. Can you say
1: a little bit about that? Yeah, of course, that is not for me to do, because they are the ones who have to work this out within the church in Guatemala, uh, Mayan Catholics among themselves, together with the whole church and the bishops. But what I think is that I, as a theologian, can can give some ideas uh, uh, which lines along which you can think. And, uh, and I'm actually a bit inspired by a, a Danish Lutheran a theologian from the 19th century uh, called Grundvi. Uh, I think many of his hymns are also translated into English, at least in the evangelical Lutheran church in, in, um, in America. Um, but he basically thought that, that the whole northern mythology, old north mythology, um, that was still alive somehow as stories told of course, that was not one-to-one compatible with with the Christian gospel and with the uh, with the Christian faith. But he thought that as a people, as a cultural entity, a people, you cannot throw away your tradition. You have to be Christian, of course, but you have to know the old stories of your culture. That is your. You can say it in a way that is your Old Testament. That is where you came from when you became Christian. That does not mean that it is a liturgical Old Testament or an or an canonical Old Testament, but uh, canon, but Old Testament in the sense that you should know all these stories. You should know because they mirror the values of a culture, uh, and I think if you could get to that point in uh, in Guatemala. Uh, where uh, you could really appreciate these uh, traditions, um, then it, 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 it would be a good start. And I, there are many good people doing that. There are Dominican friars in, in Alta Paz uh, who have a center for enculturation theology who does this work. But if you come to a place like Santiago Atitlan, it is it is more either or. You have young indigenous priests and they just want to be 100% Orthodox and buy the books. So they want to throw away all these old stories, traditions. And I can, in a way, I can understand them because it is a tradition that is still alive and still has power over people. Also, in a negative sense, that there is uh, fear of, of black witchcraft, etc. But on the other hand, it, it seems to me a little too radical. Uh, I mean, the strength of the Catholic faith has always been to be able to build bridges between the past and the present. And, the and um, if I can somehow um, contribute to building those bridges uh, in a very modest way, obviously, as I said, it's not for me to do, uh, I would be, uh, be happy and thankful. Well, thanks so much,
0: Jacob. This has been fascinating, and uh, we're going to really look forward to your uh, book that comes out of the current research that you're doing. Um, Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the Church in the Global South. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Marlon Aguilar, Finnegan Chu, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the center and its activities Look for the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology on the web, Facebook, Twitter, Vimeo, and YouTube.